This week's TribCast is sponsored by the Association of Electric Companies of Texas. AECT is your resource for understanding the electric markets in Texas. Get an overview with our Electricity 101 at AECT.net. And the Beer Alliance of Texas. Direct-to-consumer sales leads to illicit and potentially harmful alcoholic beverage products making their way into the market. Find out more at BeerAlliance.com. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for Friday, October 29th, 2021. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor of News and Politics for the Texas Tribune. And this week I am joined by the University of Texas of Arlington All-Stars, Reese Oxner, our uh, breaking news reporter. Hey, Reese. Hey, Matthew. Thanks for having me. And Brian Lopez, our uh, public education reporter. Hey, Matthew. Uh, thanks for having me. Hey, yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, all right, so Reese, I want to start with you. It is Friday. We are heading into the weekend, and next week we'll kick off with a pretty momentous day in the fight over um, abortion in, in Texas. The SB8, the state's uh, restrictive near-total ban on abortion, will be before the Supreme Court in two separate oral arguments that are happening Monday morning. You will be watching this for us. You've been following the case all along. Can you give us a little bit of a rundown of what we should be expecting on Monday? Sure. So uh, starting Monday morning, uh, about 9 a.m. Central, we're going to start hearing oral, oral arguments uh, from both of, in both of the lawsuits, so about an hour each. And we're not considering at this point the constitutionality of what Texas has done. But instead, the Supreme Court has set to uh, relatively narrow questions based on how the law is enforced and based on whether or not abortion providers really have standing or legal standing in this case. And so we've we've seen the Supreme Court uh, take action before, uh, or rather take inaction because they decide to allow the law to come into effect. And at that time, which was September 1st, when the law came into effect, they opted to not make any decisions, uh, citing the same procedural difficulties that they are now considering. Okay, very good. So, yeah, what's the difference here? I mean, do we have, have we received any kind of a hint from the court as to why they're willing to consider this now when, you know, as you noted, almost two months ago, they, they, you know, kind of passed on this issue? Sure. So, we, we haven't heard a lot from the court, um, but we can see that their most recent action is uh, it's expedited. So they're, they're taking it up a lot faster than they normally would. I mean, I was talking to legal experts and the fact that oral arguments are happening so quickly after the U.S. Department of Justice requested them um, is, is relatively unheard of. There's only a few examples of the Supreme Court moving this fast. And so uh, some think it's indication that they... Are, they have felt pressure, um, maybe from the some of the backlash and um, from both the legal community and pro-abortion advocates. Uh, some think they're trying to kind of clear this off their plate before taking up a more broad issue in December over uh, where they might possibly uh, consider a person's right to an abortion altogether. Um, so we are seeing that they are taking it on a much more expedited basis. Uh, we also know that 
they're kind of leapfrogging in this case. They're leapfrogging over the Fifth Circuit appellate court um, because normally we would be waiting for them to wrap up proceedings before the Supreme Court would ever be tapped. But uh, the Department of Justice had requested the Supreme Court to step in early, and they granted that request, even though the abortion providers had made the very same request uh, several weeks prior to that. And so what we can see from that is perhaps the presence of the United States in this uh, in these two lawsuits has kind of uh, made them want to move a little bit faster. Uh, we can't really say it indicates um, what they'll they'll vote on, right? The the initial vote to not block the law and just to allow it to take effect in early September was a five four vote. Um, we also see that they've decided to expedite that now, um, but just because they're expediting it doesn't mean they're going to roll one way or the other. And if I've learned anything from covering these legal proceedings over the last couple of months is don't try to predict what's going to happen because you're just going to you're going to end up being wrong anyway. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Uh, reading the minds of uh, Supreme Court justices is a is a challenging task for sure, um, especially given how little information they kind of give out about their deliberations and everything like that. Can you, you know, uh at the risk of asking you to speculate too much, I mean, can you walk us through the possibilities here? Do we have a sense of like what's on the table in terms of what they could do, even if we don't know which way they'll go? Sure. So, I mean, I think for starters, what's at stake here uh, for pro-abortion advocates is really the Supreme Court could put an end to one or both of the lawsuits altogether. Uh, if the, If the justices decide that the United States or the abortion providers do not have standing in the case. Um, therefore, they they don't have the right to be suing uh, to, in, a, in an effort to block the law. Then the lawsuits are just dead in the water. And so these these two lawsuits are the most high profile legal challenges we've seen. Um, the abortion providers has uh, case has been going on since before the law was signed since the summer. And so that would really put an end to this. Uh, really winding legal proceedings that we've been following. And then pro-abortion advocates would have to rely on individual cases making their way all the way to the Supreme Court, which could take months or even years, um, or any other uh, action. And and by that point, the, the Supreme Court would have likely already started considering the Mississippi abortion case, which is what experts believe could erode abortion rights altogether. And so really, this is kind of uh, the bottleneck of, of where we'll see the most action, at least in recent uh, weeks and months. And so if, if the Supreme Court does decide that there's no standing, it will just put a stop to that. But if the Supreme Court on the flip side hands a win over to the United States and to the abortion provider suing, uh, that still isn't a, a final win for them because the case will, cases will likely return to lower courts. And we'll have to do a little bit of... Um, repetitious legal proceedings. I mean, we'll probably see another temporary injunction from a district court that could also be appealed once again to the Fifth Circuit, uh, which previously had blocked the judge's block of the law, therefore allowing it to continue. And so really, it's hard to predict from there where we go if we go back to the Supreme Court, or perhaps the Fifth Circuit makes a different ruling after the Supreme Court makes whatever opinion that they're going to issue. But it's definitely not the, the final road. And so it could it could put an end to the fight for abortion rights in this legal battle, or it could just kind of prolong it is what we're what we're thinking. And then again, the Supreme Court, they really can decide whatever they want. They don't really have limits on 
what they can issue an order about, nor what questions they ask. And even though they set the kind of table for this discussion, they could completely upend that during the proceedings. So we're really going to have to wait and see on that front. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about the question of standing here. I mean, because this has been, you know, one of the unique things about this law and the challenging things is that it's, it's, it's not just about whether the state has the right to ban abortion at six weeks, you know, before, as we've noted many times, before many women actually find out that they're pregnant. But, but what we're talking about here is whether the federal government, whether these, you know, the people who have been named in these lawsuits or have brought these lawsuits even have a right to sue, you know, given that unique enforcement. Can you, can you kind of explain the, the, um, the arguments on both sides of, of the standing issue here? Sure thing. So uh, the first issue with standing uh, does come from the abortion providers lawsuits. And that, that was kind of by design, the way that SB8 was written, was to kind of confuse uh, potential legal opponents on how to stop enforcement of the law. Since, since no state or law enforcement officers are allowed to enforce it themselves, uh, there's not really a clear defendant to block future lawsuits. You can name maybe one person. You can stop them from filing a lawsuit uh, once they demonstrate that they are causing harm. But there's not really a legal route to naming hypothetical defendants. You can't just say anyone that can sue, or at least that hasn't been fully tested in the courts. And so that that issue that the abortion providers tried to get around by naming a specific district judge and and make it uh, like a class lawsuit. Um, the problem that the court encountered is they there's the question of whether state judges have sovereign immunity, which is the government's immunity from lawsuits. And that is one of the procedural difficulties that the Supreme Court cited. And that's why they said on September 1st, they weren't going to take up the issue. And so now the, the kind of solution that the United States brings is they don't they get around that sovereign, sovereign immunity. The United States does have the right to sue a state and they're allowed to take a lawsuit straight to the Supreme Court as well, which they didn't do, but that also adds to kind of um, the reason why the Supreme Court might take up the case uh, on the United States side. Now, the abortion providers, the question that the Supreme Court is answering is whether or not a state can get around um you know, legal precedent by having private citizens enforce it instead of those law enforcement officers or state officers. And so that's the question we're seeing in that uh, particular lawsuit, even though it's kind of a question for both. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that the opponents of this law have pointed to in, in trying to, you know, raise opposition to this bill is that is, is there a slippery slope here is that if this mechanism works for abortion, could it also be used for gun rights or, you know, certain things that have been protected by the Supreme Court? Uh, that conservatives are a big fan of, you know, that, you know, the uh, could could you know, in other words, could this could this strategy that is put in place to fight abortion backfire? And is there a more if you are, you know, a justice interested in paring back Roe v. Wade, is there a kind of cleaner way of going about that? So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, those those uh, questions are definitely something that's being raised by a lot of legal experts and a lot of people who may not even want to speak to uh, one side of abortion rights. They are concerned with does this erode, you know, the rule of law in the United States? Um, I think the, the advantage that the Supreme Court has had is they haven't 
answered any questions yet. So they haven't affirmed that this is a okay strategy. They've just so far not said anything about it. They've just allowed it to take place. And so they haven't done anything to to which they can't undo, I guess, or that they can go ahead and say, this isn't something we want to see. Um, we've seen it, you know, gun rights advocates even have uh, filed in support of overturning the ban because of the enforcement mechanism and not speaking to abortion rights in general. We've also heard whispers of people suggesting it could be applied to uh, not only gun rights, but things like uh, same-sex marriage. Um, I think the difference between those constitutional rights uh, from my conversations with uh, legal professors and attorneys is that that kind of uh, over overarching theme of abortion rights being in danger already, uh, because there is a provision in SB8 that also is contributing to its success, and that's that there is retroactive enforcement allowed. So at any point, if the law is blocked or enforcement of the law is blocked and later allowed to resume, any any abortions outlawed by the statute during that time could once again be litigated. And so what that means is even if the Supreme Court now says, yes, uh, this enforcement mechanism is bad, we're going to block it, and abortion providers resume procedures in the state, many believe that if abortion rights are further eroded, um, and starting with the December case, uh, pro uh, or anti-abortion advocates or anyone really could go back and then sue providers over abortions performed during that period. And so it, it really does create a chilling effect. And that's why we haven't seen, you know, a lot of a lot of providers uh, just having performing abortions anyway. Uh, some people have told me, you know, if you, you did this with gun rights, for example, say California put a similar law to just completely remove gun ownership, well, then you would likely see a lot more resistance, a lot more people defying and challenging the law in court. And the Supreme Court, uh, you know, would likely be more quick to overturn that. I mean, it's, uh, I've heard the abortion rights, uh, constitu- the constitutional right to an abortion be referred to as a least favorite constitutional right, which is really not, it's not an official thing at all, but based on the perception of how the Supreme Court is leaning, uh, it, it could very well contribute to this kind of slower uh, reaction to the law. You know, typically uh, the Supreme Court does maintain status quo, right? There's precedents and they want to maintain what's normal. And we see that in the Mississippi case. I mean, that law was blocked before it ever came uh, into effect. But with this law, they've they've kind of allowed it to continue and just cited those procedural delays. Whether or not we would see that with a similar uh, law for another constitutional right is uncertain. But from what I've heard from legal experts, unlikely as well. Fascinating. Interesting. Okay. So, you know, you mentioned the Supreme Court can in large part do kind of whatever they want to do, but I think it's probably safe to say we're not going to see this be resolved on Monday. We're not going to see, a, you know, an order coming out at least for a while. So what exactly are you going to be watching for? Like, what is there anything you're, you know, uh, you, you want to see in the or, or curious about in the, the arguments that, that, you know, will will satisfy your curiosity about where the, the court might be heading here? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think, I think again, it's really hard uh, to predict, right, uh, what they might actually do. And so I'm, I'm trying to kind of reserve uh, any assumptions while I'm watching the, the court proceedings unfold and the oral arguments. But I, I think what I'm curious to hear is really how the justices react to this enforcement mechanism. Uh, they've been largely silent, I mean, silent on the entire issue, but 
even when they they decided to allow the law to go into effect, it was a very, very short unsigned order um, without really uh, giving us any insight into what the justices were thinking, except in the, the dissents. And the dissents were uh, rather scathing on allowing Texas to basically create this loophole and the Supreme Court to allow Texas to get away with it. So I'm really curious to hear maybe the the other side of the argument too and why it was allowed to continue. I mean, the Supreme Court was also asked to, once again, to put a temporary block uh, while considering these oral arguments on Monday, and it refused to do so again. And so I'm curious to hear about the enforcement mechanism because it is is something novel. It's not something we've seen before. Um, civil civil lawsuits just completely being the only enforcement for, for a state's law. And then uh, the other thing I'm, I'm just curious, yeah, if, if the discussion's going to kind of veer toward that discussion of constitutionality of the law, because even though the, the Supreme Court uh, isn't considering those questions um, explicitly, I, I imagine that just like in the other court proceedings, we're going to hear uh, arguments from both sides on that front. And so I think really it's just going to be interesting to get a kind of peek behind the curtain to see what the justices are thinking since we've had such a limited uh, look so far. And then as far as the timeline, uh, yeah, I mean, my uh, the legal experts I've talked to really seem to think that there will be a quicker decision by Supreme Court uh, standards, at least. And while we, we, yeah, it's almost certain we won't see an opinion on Monday itself, uh, they're, they're saying they're expecting one in weeks, if not days. Um, certainly before the next abortion case is taken up in December. Interesting. Okay, well, it'll be fascinating to watch. Thank you for, for guiding us through that. Let's take a break real quickly to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll talk about books and schools. Raise Your Hand, Texas. Raise Your Hand, Texas presents the podcast Intersect Ed, where the stories of education policy and practice meet. Visit raiseyourhandtexas.org slash podcast. And Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Determination in 2020. A year that tested our resolve and revealed an emerging mental health crisis. Read Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute's 2020 annual report to learn more at mmhpi.org. All right, so another issue that we have been paying close attention to this week was a letter from State Representative Matt Kraus, the chair of the General Investigating Committee for the Texas House, to, I believe, the TEA and school districts across the state, asking them if they have a list of, I believe, more than 850 books in their libraries and on their campuses. Um, Part of a, I think, what we could describe as a more general you know, airing of concerns among conservative parents and also lawmakers about, you know, what is being taught in schools in Texas. Brian, you have been following this for the Tribune. You were the one who broke the story of this letter. Tell us a little bit more about what was in this letter and, and what Matt Krause is doing right here. Yeah. And, um, you know, Matthew, I think that's the question we're kind of all asking ourselves right now, you know, exactly what is uh, Representative Matt Kraus trying to get at. Um, it's other than this very specific list, it's almost very vague. Uh, you know, we don't know how many districts he sent this out to. Um, from the districts that I've talked to that have responded, you know, most of them are saying, you know, we're still reviewing this. Uh, we don't exactly know what this means for us. The only district right now that we know of that is saying, yes, we're going to comply is Fort Worth ISD. Um, out of, you know, the big districts when we think about Houston and 
and and Dallas and Austin and all those uh, big cities. Um, and one of the most clear instances that uh, Representative Krauss gives us, though, is you know he he adds on one of his third points. He adds uh, a sentence straight from. HB 3979, which is, you know, the so-called critical race theory bill. And, and, you know, that gives us and, you know, the general public the indication, you know, he, he is trying to see how and can he enforce this law. Um, and, you know, from the TA side, you know, the, they're saying no comment. Um, he's saying no comment. He doesn't want to speak on this. So it's very much in the dark and, and something that we're still trying to figure out right now. What can you tell us about this list? What what kind of books are on it? I mean, obviously, eight hundred and fifty is a lot, but um, is there any pattern you've seen about the the types of books that have been flagged here? Yeah, they all have to do with you know um, race uh, and sexuality, sexuality specifically LGBT issues, um, and any issues that have to do with pregnancy or you know. Uh, say sex, uh, things that, you know, um, maybe some parents might have issues with, but, you know, that's up to individual parents to decide. Uh, what this does is, you know, you're trying to vet or audit full libraries. Um, so we're seeing a pattern of, you know, books that are written by people of color, uh, marginalized communities, um, and, you know, things that, you know, maybe a, a student that doesn't see a lot of representation uh, growing up, um, you know, might want to read those books and, and, and feel seen or feel like, you know, you know, they matter. So that's, you know, the other questions that people have in their mind, you know, why these books uh, specifically, you know, um, that are, you know, having to do with Black Lives Matter protests, racial issues in America, why are they being signaled out? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, my brief kind of glancing at the list, it, it seemed like it was everything from, you know, books about how to deal with bullies to, you know, pre some, some pretty major significant works of kind of public intellectualism over the years. Uh, the, the New Jim Crow was one that came to mind, cast by Isabel Wilkerson, which are, um, All right. you know, books with points of view, uh, unquestionably, mm -hmm. but also books that are written, you know, by people who have won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, books that have really changed the the discourse in some ways uh, around issues of race at sometimes issues of sex sexuality, issues of um, policing. So it's, it's interesting to see and will be interesting to see where Matt Krauss is going with this, because I think one thing that I have kind of been wondering about here is, is the opposition to this, the you know, do, is the opposition to this books that have a point of view? Do, do they not want, you know, students reading books that have arguments in them or make cases, try to make persuasive cases? Um, or is it the topics that they're touching on? Because, you know, I do wonder about, you know, part of, part of learning, part of reading is, is not necessarily reading things that you might always agree with, but, but reading, you know, arguments that are well constructed and, and, uh, are, are done to kind of challenge people's beliefs. And, and so I'll be curious to see kind of what is found to be acceptable, you know, on this list and, and, and in this discussion as a whole. One, one thing that I, I think is worth noting here, right, Brian, is that it seems as though right now this is just a request, right? And it, it's sort of up to the school districts whether or not they want to comply. Yeah, yeah. Right now, it's it's you know 
it's a it's it doesn't you know i read something from a, a lawmaker it said you know this is it doesn't seem like it's a public records request it doesn't seem like you know you need to do this or x will happen uh there's no consequence tied behind this um and that's why you know school districts are right now just not even you know nobody has come out in a hurry like oh yes we're gonna get this to to representative Krauss as soon as possible they're right now reviewing all their options to see if there is any legal standing uh, for this request or any consequences to school districts. Um, and, you know, the other, you know, point that, you know, a lot of people have been saying is, you know, this is just another uh, task being piled upon schools that are already having to deal with, um, you know, the effects of the pandemic, um, you know, getting kids back in, in, in classrooms and learning. Uh, so this could be also another distraction. Um, and, you know, I talked to one librarian and, and she told me that, uh, you know, this is, it almost seems like it's another intimidation tool. Um, uh, you know, teachers, like I said, they're already, you know, fearful of, you know, what if I say something wrong? Is somebody going to complain? Am I going to be, be presented on the board? It just, it all seems very, you know, it's all confusing and it's all, uh, you know, scary for, for those, you know, teaching. Um, so that's where like the situation right now, it's a lot of confusion, a lot of fear. And, and like you said, the books seem to be ones that challenge uh, the way that we think. Uh, so, and that's what books and any kind of article that you read are supposed to do. So, you know, we're all just kind of like, you know, what's going to happen next. Yeah. One thing that has really struck me about this debate, which has been going on even before this cross list came out, was that a lot of the things that are being done in the legislature among lawmakers are somewhat vague, right? I mean, we've said that a lot about um, the the so-called critical race theory bills that have, have been passed out of the legislature lately, is that it doesn't necessarily ban specific books, just like, you know, Matt Krause has made clear that he's not at least for now, advocating for the banning of any particular books in in this letter. But it you do wonder about how these letters will be interpreted and what effect they will have. I mean, you wrote about what happened in Southlake, right, with this um, the related to, to books about the Holocaust. Can you can you talk a little bit about what's happening up there and, and kind of how you're seeing this actually play out in districts around the state? I think it- you know, what happened in, in Southlake with the, you know, the, the administrator saying, you know, if, if you're going to present a book on the Holocaust, try to present an opposing view, you know, it's, it's crazy that that was even, you know, said and teachers, uh, you know, in the recording that we hear, they were very confused, like, how do we do that? Um, and I think that's the exact, you know, that little, you know, interaction there in Southlake is really telling of what most school districts are going through right now. It's like, you know, there's this new law, you know, that's supposed to, you know, you know, limit how we talk about race and look at history, American history. Uh, so you're like, what can or can we not do? And the language is so vague that, you know, everybody is very confused as to, you know, first of all, what are the consequences? And second of all, how do we actually follow this, this law? Um, and after that South Lake incident, you know, there was uh, some lawmakers who um, I believe signed on to the law when it was first introduced in the, in the, in the Senate and stuff, they, they were like, you know, Southlake got it wrong. You know, that's not how we're, you know, we're not asking you to like ban books. We're not asking you to, you know, you know, ask, uh, show an opposing view on a, you know, on historical atrocity. Um, 
but you know at the same time those lawmakers didn't add you know exactly like how they're supposed how schools are supposed to you know obey this thing so what you're seeing right now is just like you know everybody kind of just walking on their tip tippy toes you know trying to avoid as many controversial topics as possible um, while also trying to you know teach students what they're supposed to be be learning about you know history yeah yeah specifically with the holocaust example in south lake you know you saw um state senator kelly hancock tweet after that you know school administrators should know the difference between factual historical events and fiction no legislation mm -hmm. is suggesting the action this administrator is promoting but you know, what is a, you know, talking about slavery is, of course, a factual historical event too. talking about the Civil War, you know, but there are people who believe that, you know, slavery wasn't a reason behind the Civil War. So so where do you draw that line? What who is the arbiter of, of what deserves kind of a second, you know, a, a opposite opinion or, you know, both sides approach and, and what, you know, is is as as Hancock presents it. Uh, a factual historical event. I don't think we know the answer to that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's exactly what, you know, schools, you'll see maybe schools going, you know, like in terms of South Lake, you know, maybe districts will learn from what happened there, but you know, in any, that's just an example, like you're trying to go too far to try to interpret the law, you know, there, or you interpret the law the wrong way because it's vague and you don't want to get in trouble. So you do things like, what happened in South Lake. So it's very, it's a very, it's a very like unique situation in, in, in terms of like, like what are we supposed to do and, and how are we supposed to get, you know, how are we supposed to not get into trouble? Um, and, and, you know, with, this goes back to, you know, Cross also, he's seemingly, you know, the first, you know, lawmaker to actually, you know, insert himself into like this whole debate about books and what should be taught because, up till now, all we have seen is, you know, the parents going up to school boards uh, and, and filing complaints against teachers or principals. So we didn't have we didn't ever see, you know, uh, the state actually get involved until now. And even they're involved now. But even right now, we don't know exactly to what extent they they will ultimately finish this off with. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think like from following your coverage, Brian, like what's interest most interesting to me about Krauss's approaches is kind of that what what's left unsaid. I mean, it, we've already heard that he doesn't he hasn't made any action that's required, right? You mentioned that schools aren't required to to participate in that. We don't know which schools were asked. And so I guess I'm curious: has Krauss at all uh, tipped his hand in any subsequent statements on as to what he's hoping to accomplish with this audit, or are we still kind of uh, in the dark on that front? I think we're still kind of in the dark on, on that front, you know, I, when I spoke to him over text, you know, he was like, you know, I'm not going to talk about this investigation. Um, and you know, that's what like we're trying to figure out here at, at, you know, at the Tribune, you know, through is exactly, you know, trying to unveil that, you know, through, if, it, if it's not going to be through cross, it has to be through some other lawmaker, some other methods, uh, because that's the real question, you know, school schools teachers parents rightfully have right is you know you know what are the consequences of this what does this mean um because it's it's you know teachers everybody that 
is in public education. And frankly, anybody that cares about, you know, Texas should be worried about um, where this could go um, and to what length uh, lawmakers, you know, what lengths lawmakers will take to, to enforce any, what being, what is being taught in, in school. So, you know, that's what we're trying to do right now is, is figure out, you know, what's the end game here? What's the goal? We will, I think, continue asking that question and hopefully get some some clarity soon. Thank you, Brian, and thank you, Reese, for, for joining us today. Uh, I think that's all for us today. Um, thank you to Michael Ray, our, our uh, engineer. Thank you for our sponsors, the Texas Association of Electric Companies of Texas, the Beer Alliance of Texas, Raise Your Hand Texas, and the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. We'll talk to you all next week. Do I have to talk to you?